0: You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Well, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to meet me back in 1 Corinthians. We are in chapter 6 this morning. And we are continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians, a sermon series that we've titled Renovation, And in this letter, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a church that is in need of some significant renovation. Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth planting a church, preaching the gospel, seeing people come to faith, their hearts being opened, their eyes being opened to the truth about Jesus, the Messiah, discipling them, what it means to follow Jesus, the Messiah, until the day that he comes again. Spent about 18 months with them. And then he writes this letter after being gone for roughly about 18 months. So it's a young church. It's young Christians. And Paul has gotten word that they need some renovation as a church, not because their building is old and raggedy, because they have burgundy carpet and outdated light fixtures, but they need renovation of the heart. Paul has gotten word that these brothers and sisters in Christ, these new Christians, have begun to live a life that is inconsistent with the gospel that they proclaim, or maybe let me give you a word. They've begun to live a life that is incongruent, a life that is incongruent with the grace and truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In Paul's absence, specifically, they've gone back to their former ways. I grew up in a small town in southeast Texas, a town called Hull, Hull, Texas, H-U-L-L. The joke was that it's like growing up in hell, but instead there's a U in it. Uh, get the joke. I grew up in a small town, literally more cows than people in the town that I grew up in. And I'll never forget the first time after Sammy and I were married that I took her back home. My family does a big gathering on the 4th of July every year. So just think of like thousands and thousands of cousins that you haven't, you know, cousins you didn't even know were your cousins, right? Just tons of people that are there, old friends from my small town, family friends that I hadn't seen in, in a long time. And I was having an absolute blast catching up with friends and family friends. And my old high school football coach was there because that's just what you do in a small town. It's like part of the family. Come on over. And I, had a, I was having a ball. I was having a blast. And I'll never forget, we got in the car uh, to leave to go home. And my wife just looked at me and she just started laughing. And she said, who was that? Like, who was that person that you just became? Especially that accent, she said. <laughs> Where did that hillbilly, small town, southern drawl come from? And I I was like, I don't know. I didn't even know I was doing that. She thought it was pretty funny. It got back in that context and that space and kind of went back to the small town kid, even talked like the small town kid that I used to be. In a similar way, Paul is getting a glimpse. He's gotten word that the Corinthian church has shape shifted, has gone back into their Corinthian ways, to who they used to be before they've encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to Paul, it's not funny. It's serious. And so he's writing to get their attention. And so if you've been with us, we've been working through this letter, and we've seen that he's addressed these things, things like arrogance and elitism that has bubbled up in their hearts and is now manifesting in their life, and it's causing divisions in the church. They're divided just like the culture. It shouldn't be this way with the people of Jesus. Last week, we looked at Paul began to address sexual sin in the church. And we'll pick that up next week. We'll talk more about that. This isn't the way of Jesus. This is not God's design for your bodies and for your relationships. It shouldn't be this way with the way of Jesus, the way it is in the culture. And in our text today, he addresses another issue. Paul's gotten word that some of the Corinthian brothers and sisters are taking their disputes, their disagreements, their grievances with one another into the Corinthian public courts. It's, it, the, the text is an interesting one. It might not seem very relevant to you at first, but just hang with me. It, it reads almost as if Paul is like flipping through the channels one day, and all of a sudden he ends up on Judge Judy. And like to his, to his total horror, he sees like two Corinthian brothers and sisters like duking it out on Judge Judy. And he's like, what? It's these ridiculous, to him, ridiculous lawsuits that they are bringing against one another into the Corinthian courts. And so what I want to do is I want to, today, I want to talk about this problem, the real problem in the text, one that might not seem that relevant to you. You might be thinking, hey, I came to church today, I want to, I'm hungry to hear a word from God. Look, I'm not in court with anybody, I'm not in a lawsuit with anyone. Maybe you are in a lawsuit with one, and today's your day. I'm glad you chose today. Um, hang with me, I want to kind of get into the problem of the text, but then where I really want to land is in the principle of the text. So let me first give you the problem of the text. The problem of the text is Paul says that these brothers and sisters in Christ ought not to be settling their disputes in public courts, that this is unfitting for followers of Jesus. Now, the challenge of the text is that we don't know many of the specifics at all about these lawsuits. We don't know how frequent this is happening in Corinth, we don't know the context, we don't know the nature, what are they suing each other over, what is this all about, we don't know. We just know that Paul says this behavior is unfitting For followers of Jesus. Um, Let me give you the principle of the text. I'll give these to you up front, and maybe this will help us as we make our way through. Here's the principle of the text that Christians who begin to live by the standards of the world or the story of the world are Christians who have forgotten the gospel. We start to live by the standards of the world and the storylines of the world. It's It's evidence that we have forgotten the gospel. That's what I want to do. Let's work first through the problem of the text, and then we'll land in the principle of the text. Uh, let's understand the problem of the text. Christians suing Christians in Corinthian courts. Um, let me give you three things, three things on a bit of the historical background here that I think will help us. Inti um, Wright says this about the text. He says that for those of us who are in uh, societies like America or even Europe where our judicial systems are built on Judeo-Christian values, this text might seem a bit perplexing. Because the, the Roman courts, and particularly where there was kind of Greek and Roman fusion in Corinth, uh, those courts certainly were not built on Judeo Christian values. Specifically, and, and listen, our court system isn't perfect. I want to be clear about that. It's not perfect at all, but it's still built on a Christian principle of, a, of, of getting to justice as much as we can get to justice. This was not the case in Corinth. The courts in Corinth were places of injustice. That's number one. Uh, Corinthian courts were unjust. Corinthian courts had a reputation for for lawsuits not being about justice, but being about uh, uh, right claiming. So I'm gonna claim rights over you, so I'm gonna take you to court. Or I'm gonna claim rights over something that's yours that I think should be mine, and so I'm gonna take you to court. Lawsuits were about gaining status. Here's what one commentator said. It says, evidence indicates that civil courts in this era were less than impartial and substantial corruption existed. There was not equal access to courts and honor- honorary magistrates or judges and juries were open to bribery and bias toward the elite in such an obvious way. This picture of like a neon fl- fluorescent like open for bribery sign hangs over the courts. They were known to act unjustly. So Corinthian courts were not about justice, not about uh, establishing what is right before, uh, before the law and before God. It was about bribery, corruption, status-seeking, right-claiming. Number two, lawsuits in Corinthian culture were consumed as entertainment. Listen to, listen to one commentator. He says, the law courts were, in fact, one of their chief amusements and entertainments – in Corinth. In a Greek-influenced city, every man was more or less a lawyer and spent a very great part of his time either deciding or listening to law cases. Kind of weird, right? (laughs) But it sounds maybe like like some of us in our culture today are with true crime. You know who you are. (laughs) You're like, that's kind of odd. We spend a lot of our time listening to, watching podcasts and documentaries and shows about murders and Serial kill? That's kind of weird. Uh, in Corinth, it was, this case was with lawsuits and with right claiming and who was going to win and who, uh, who was going to lose. What were they going to take and what were they going to receive? The commentator goes on. He says they were no, the Corinthians were notorious for their love of going to law. Finally, one other commentator said this. Lawsuits were not merely initiated to resolve legitimate social grievances, but also to further the social status of the litigants. It's, it's almost like lawsuits were even a way to grow your reputation, to get famous in the media. You know, uh, this is kind of the picture, and so it's becoming very clear why Paul would say that followers of Jesus ought to stay out of all of this: corruption, injustice, bribery, right claiming, notoriety, status seeking. He's saying, "Stay out of this. This is not the way of Jesus." Third thing, I want you to know about the context of this passage is that the disputes that Paul is talking about here when he says that brothers and sisters ought not take brothers and sisters into public courts, that the kind of things he's talking about are more kind of material, everyday disputes, things that we might consider in our context today like petty crimes. Look back at the text, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1 through 3. He says, When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? Instead of the saints, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Three things here. He uses the word grievances. He uses the word trivial cases, and then he says matters pertaining to life. Um, the word grievance in the Greek is a word that was used to reference money or or business affairs. He later calls them, in verse 5, he calls them disputes, which is a word that's kind of about a relational tearing. This idea of relational disputes, or relational tearing. He says in verse 2, he calls them trivial cases. And in verse 3, matters pertaining to this life, or it could be translated earthly, material matters. The pictures that we get here are of everyday disputes. Now, if you've lived any life at all, you know that people are going to encounter disputes, can happen if you're married in your marriage, if you're single and you have a roommate, it's going to happen with your roommates, uh, it's going to happen in your family of origin, and it's going to happen in a local church. So there's going to be disputes. You could think of these kinds of things he's talking about, like a fender bender in the church parking lot, and when someone just drives off. Like, as a Christian, what do you do? You're like, hey man, you hit my car, like, and you just drove off. Or, you know, you go out to lunch with someone and they kind of run up the bill, they order a whole bunch of stuff, and then they forgot their debit card. What? You know, you, you know people like this. You know who you are, if you are this person. <laughs> oh, hey, I'll Venmo you. Weeks go by. <laughs> Months go by. Right? It's these kinds of situations. If you're brothers and sisters in Christ, like what, what, what do you do? Or you maybe more seriously, you, you go into business together, and someone, business partner, is not holding up their end of the deal. What do you do? What do we do in these kinds of situations? Well, Paul says that it is unfitting for Christians to bring their disputes into the public for unbelievers, one, to see, and two, to decide. Look back at verses four through eight. So, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Saying you ought to be ashamed of yourselves, but you're not. You're so blinded to it. Kind of like me at my family reunion, not knowing that I was speaking, talking like a hillbilly. Like, you, you should be ashamed of this, but you're so, you're so blind to it. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. The fact that you're already fighting and disputing and not loving and serving is already a problem, much less to take it to court before unbelievers to see your disunity and division. He says, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves are the ones who wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And so there's a a double rebuke here for the ones who are uh, defrauding and stealing and cheating and then for those that are, enter, that are entering into the, the courts to let unbelievers both see and decide. And the point that Paul is making here is that all of this is happening before unbelievers, and they are tarnishing the reputation of Christ in the culture. Paul, you see, one thing we have to understand is that Paul's vision for the church is that the church would be a people that are marked by love and unity. A public people. In other words, the church ought to be an apologetic of the gospel. What does that mean? It means that people can look at the church and understand and see and sense and come to better believe who Jesus is, what Jesus has done what God offers us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do all of that by looking at the church. The church is the visible witness. It's not just about our words. It's not just about a pastor in a pulpit, but it's about people and how we live our everyday life, displaying the transformation and the redemption that we've experienced in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's vision for the church, marked by love and unity. Let me go further. This is not just Paul's vision for the church. This is Jesus' vision for his church. What does Jesus say in Matthew 5, 16, in his famous sermon, right? These are people who follow the Messiah who preached the sermon on the mount, dragging one another into courts. Jesus, who says, let your light shine before men, that they might see your good deeds, they might see your public life, and glorify the Father on the day of his visitation. That they would see how you live, you live in such a distinct, different way, Jesus says in Matthew 5, salty and bright like light, that they would want to worship the Jesus that you know. Jesus says in John 17, he prays for his disciples. What does he pray for? Oneness, unity, and love. This is Jesus' vision for his church. It's Paul's vision for Jesus' church. And so what Paul is not saying is that Christians ought not to ever have issues with one another. That we ought to not ever have disputes, or we might not ever um, hurt one another, or... Uh, offend one another, or even do wrong by one another. Rather, though, what he is saying is that when we do have these grievances, that they ought to be handled in such a way that it is an opportunity for us. Think about that. Every division, every conflict, every problem, every uh, every grievance is an opportunity for us to display the power of Jesus Christ to the world. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Of the church. Every problem, every conflict is an opportunity for those who are led by the Spirit of God. This is what he's saying that that grievances ought not to be drug out into the public. Our grievances ought not to be taken before Judge Judy, but they ought to be handled within, handled in such a way that is distinct from the world, ought to display the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace, the reconciling power. Of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you have a Bible, flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul wrote uh, this letter to the church in Ephesus seven, eight, maybe nine years after he wrote this letter to the Corinthians. And so perhaps Paul has learned a thing or two about about how he needs to be real clear up front. Um, And so here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, I urge you. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So live a life that is congruent with the calling of Jesus Christ. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Eager. Like actively working to maintain unity. Do you see Paul's vision for the church? He says this in verse 31 and 32, look down at the end of the chapter. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. So do you think these things are gonna bubble up? Do you think these things are gonna pop up in our communal life together as the church, as brothers and sisters? Yes, but look what he says. Let it all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice, hatred. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This is the way of Jesus. This is the calling of Christ upon our lives. As we have received from him what he has done for us, he wants to do through us. What he's done to us, he wants to work through us. So that the watching world would see the power of redemption in our lives. This is the way of Jesus. Do you, do you see how these two texts contrast one another? 1 Corinthians 6, 1-11, through and Ephesians chapter 4. Do you see the different stuff that is, that is that's going on? In these communities. Um, what happens, though, when it's hard to do this? What happens when it's hard to forgive as Christ has forgiven? Maybe you're in that spot now. Maybe you're in that spot in a relationship that's in your household, between a parent and a child, between spouses. Maybe you're in that, re- that spot in the church in someone in your gospel community or someone in this congregation. What, what happens? What do we do when it's hard to forgive, when it's hard to let go of bitterness, what do we do? Well, Paul actually hints at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 5. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 5. In the midst of the rebuke, he hints toward the right behavior. He says, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Paul is saying, We bring in mature brothers and sisters to counsel. It's the principle of Matthew chapter 28. We don't just kind of set it aside and let the bitterness marinate. But we, we, like he says in Ephesians 4, we are eager to maintain unity. That's the calling of the Christian. I want to ask you, if there's a dispute or division or hurt or wrongs in your life right now with someone else, are you the one that's eager to follow the way of Jesus, to maintain unity? Are you eager? And if you are, Paul says that that's the next step, to bring someone in, a mature brother or sister in your life to sit down and to, help, counsel. Maybe for you that looks like uh, someone uh, in your gospel community, or maybe you're a GC leader, or maybe it looks like a leader in this church, a deacon, or one of, the, one of our pastors, to say, hey, I need some help. I need some counsel. I'm really struggling to let go of division. You see, here's the principle. If the church isn't embodying unity and reconciliation and forgiveness to the world, then what's it there for? What's it there for? If the church isn't Walking in the truth of the gospel. What's our point? What's our purpose? N.T. Wright says this. He says, A public dispute between Christians is a sign that Christians are really no different than anybody else. Man, I wish that we could just like apply this to like, Christian social media. Jeez. A dispute between Christians is a sign that Christians are really no different than anybody else. And 1 Corinthians is all about the fact that Christians are different from everybody else. That's the point. We're different. Jesus has made us new. It's interesting what Paul is doing. He's really trying to drive this point home. It might not seem like that big of a deal to you. It didn't seem like that big of a deal to the Corinthians. Yeah, so what? So what if there's some division and disunity in the church and it's going public and we're airing our dirty laundry? Paul says, this is serious, guys. This is serious. And to drive the point home, he layers this rebuke with some strong theology. Look back at verse two and three. He says, do you not know that the saints, the church will judge the world? Verse 3, he says, Do you not know that we are to judge angels? What's he talking about here? Well, Paul is pointing these brothers and sisters to their future in Christ. He's pointing them forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. What is, I want to ask you this, what is unique about the second coming of Jesus Christ? The first coming of Jesus Christ, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It was about a manifestation of the love of God for sinners. What's unique about the second coming of Christ? In the second coming of Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ will come back to establish the justice of God in all the earth. He will make all things right. He will make all things righteous. And Paul is pointing them forward to this day. He's saying, this is your Christian hope. Not these these everyday trivial matters that you're so caught up in. The Lord Jesus Christ will come again, and when he does, he will make all things Right, and the Bible tells us in several places, and Paul is pulling on this, Daniel 7, 22, Revelations 3, 21, Revelation 24, tells us that upon the return of Jesus Christ, that the, the saints or the, the holy ones, that it, that all that is language to say God's elect, God's people, the church, that we will stand with Jesus on the day of judgment as representatives of his justice. That is a, a really profound thought. He's saying you will stand with Christ as he judges the living and the dead as representatives of his judgment. And we don't know how all of this will play out. That's the thing with theology. There's some mystery to it. And Paul isn't writing here to unpack finer points of theology. He's lacing his point about the need for unity to be on display with this theological punch. So we don't know how this will all play out, but here's what I believe. I believe that, 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 part, that this is part of how Jesus will bring our redemption to completion. In 2 Peter chapter five, Paul talks to those who have suffered, those who have suffered injustice, those who have uh, suffered uh, sufferings and persecution and hardships in this life. He says that Jesus, he says, he himself will restore you upon his return. It's it's a personal word. I think that part of how all of this will play out, how he will bring our redemption to completion, especially those who have suffered injustices in this life, things like being defrauded by our brother and sister and letting it go, things like being hurt and forgiving, things like being abused, things like being persecuted, being thrown under the bus and letting it go, letting it be crucified with Christ. Christ forgiving as Christ has forgiven. I think that those who have suffered injustices, for example, maybe our brothers and sisters in other nations and places like India who are being attacked and killed for their faith, I think it's this picture that on the day of judgment that they will be standing with Christ. They will be vindicated with Jesus. They will be victorious with Christ. They will be artifacts of his truth that they were persecuted for. Isn't that beautiful? Beautiful or maybe people who have been abused or defrauded or abandoned, that on the day of Christ's return, they will be standing with Christ as ambassadors of his righteousness and pictures of his healing and his redemption, vindicated by the victorious Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And Paul says apparently even angels are a part of this too. Um, Fallen angels, I think is what he's talking about. Uh, this This is getting out there, but the Bible is clear that in Christ, God is reconciling all things, things in, on earth and things in heaven. And so even fallen angels are part of the, the, the Ephesians chapter 3 says that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God, the beauty, the power, the unity, the glory of God is displayed to the heavenly places. See, to so Paul, there's a lot of power in what we're doing here, how we live as a people. It's putting the gospel the riches of Christ on display. And so again, the point that he is making isn't to articulate a clear doctrine about judgment or about humans judging angels, but it's to emphasize how unfitting it is for Christ followers to drag their disputes and their disunity into the public space. Now, I wanted to zoom out and deal with the problem and kind of try and unpack the problem so that we could then get to the principle of the text. I think when we look at the text in light of the context of Corinth, in light of the issues that the Corinthians were facing, what we see is that these lawsuits among the Corinthian church were just another symptom of the real problem. This is just another symptom of the root problem in the Corinthian church. And while the Apostle Paul is concerned about the symptom, it's the underlying issue, it's the root It's the root problem that he wants to treat. And what is that underlying issue? Well, it's what Paul David Tripp calls gospel amnesia. It's gospel amnesia. This is what is the real issue in Corinth. What is it like to have amnesia? Well, it's to have short-term memory loss, right? Like you can remember who the president was 10 years ago, but you can't remember who the president is today. It's to... Uh, be able to have core memories that stay intact, old patterns and old ways, but hard to hold on to and walk in the new. I'm curious if you've noticed this throughout the text. There's a phrase that Paul uses in this text three times that points to the real problem, to the gospel amnesia, the gospel forgetfulness that they're experiencing. Three times in this text, Paul uses the phrase, do you not know? Did you notice it? Not only does he use it three times in this text, but Paul uses it eight times, same phrase, in the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know? Have you not learned? Have you not remembered? Do you not know? Ten times total, he uses it in the letter. It's a key component to 1 Corinthians, forgetfulness. I've been there, and I've taught you the truth, and I've discipled you how to follow Jesus. Do you not know? Have you forgotten, Paul says? The first time we see this phrase, do you not know, is in chapter 3, verse 16, when he's talking about uh, the divisions in the church. And he says, do you not know that you are God's temple and the spirit of God dwells in you? Every time that we see this phrase in 1 Corinthians, do you not know, it's always followed by a gospel truth. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, but you are unleavened. you remember that from last week? Gospel amnesia. Have you forgotten? H- have you not learned? You see, the divisions, the arrogance, the tolerance of sin, the dragging one another into courts, it's all a symptom of forgetting the gospel. And when we as Christ followers forget the gospel, what do we do? We go back to living by the storylines of the world. We go back to our old patterns in our old ways. And this is why Paul ends the rebuke in chapter 6, the way that he does. Look back at verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Or do you not know? There it is again, third time in this text. That the unrighteous, he's talking here, the, the word could be and probably should be translated as unjust. He's talking specifically about the judges. These judges that you're dragging people in front of, to settle your divisions. He says, "Don't you know that the unjust, that those people will not inherit the kingdom of God? And yet you're taking your disunity before them? Do you not know? Have you forgotten the gospel? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Have you forgotten?" Have you forgotten, Paul says, that unbelievers, those who reject Jesus and who don't walk in his ways, will be on the wrong side of things upon the return of Jesus Christ? And then he gives this list, and the point of the list isn't to label people and categorize people by their sin, but the point of the list is to say that these are all ways that kind of manifest that, you, that you're not, uh, that you're not um, uh, walking with Christ, that you've rejected Christ, that you've kind of given yourself over to the ways of the world. And so there's, there's sexual sins that he lists here in the list. That, do you not know that people who, who walk outside of God's design with their bodies and with their sexuality, that they're going this way, but Jesus calls us this way, this is the way of his kingdom? And then he, part, part of the list are relational sins, idolatry and And greed and swindling, that's a fun word. It just means uh, uh, to defraud. Revilers, it's an interesting word. You probably haven't used that word in a while. It just means to be verbally abusive, to tear people apart. Do you not know that that's going this way? And Jesus has called us this way into his kingdom. And here's the thing about the list that Paul gives. It's not exhaustive, but it's pretty holistic, isn't it? It's not exhaustive, meaning there's lots of other things he could have put on the list. But it's pretty holistic. Every single person that has read this letter, every single person that's in this room, we can find ourselves in this list, can't we? We can find ourselves. We can find our struggles. We can find our sin. We can find our old ways. And the point that Paul is making is he's, he isn't trying to uh, create some new legalistic practice that says Christians can never sue Christians. That's not the point that he's making. He's writing to bring renovation to the heart of people who have drifted back into their old self, who have forgotten the gospel and all of its benefits, who are experiencing gospel amnesia. Look back at verse 11. He closes this way. He says, he gives this list. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, what Paul wants here is he wants his readers to be sure of the gospel. He he wants us to find ourselves actually on this list and to say, have I drifted? Have I forgotten the gospel and all of its benefits? Have I gone back to the old patterns and some of the storylines of the world and some of the ways of the culture that Jesus saved me out of? He wants us to find ourselves on the list. And he wants us to be sure that while we may have momentarily forgotten the gospel, we can be sure that God has not forgotten us. That's what he's saying. He wants us to know that, that though our current sin, as shameful as they may be, and some of you may be here today and you are, you've done this, you are living in sin, you've drifted back into sin, into old patterns, the Spirit is convicting you. He wants you to be sure that, that those sins, so you may have drifted back into them, they do not define you, but Jesus Christ does. Do you see the good news in this text? Will you hear that this morning? In fact, the verb tense that Paul uses is important. It indicates that God has done something in the past that is continuing into the present. He's calling us. He's actually hearkening back to your baptism. He's saying, you were washed. You were cleansed by the blood of Jesus and that was represented in your baptism. And you are clean today despite your sin that you carry. That's what Paul is telling them. You were sanctified by his sacrifice, his atonement on the cross. And you are clean today despite your unrighteousness. He says you are justified by Jesus' death and his resurrection, and you stand righteous today despite your unbelief. This is good news. In other words, while there might be incongruencies, while there might be, there might, we might experience gospel amnesia in our lives, while there might be incongruencies with us. There are no incongruencies with our Savior. He will not forget his grace. He will not forget his promises that he's made to you. What a powerful reminder that Paul gives to a bunch of wayward people. (laughs) Amen? What a powerful reminder to a bunch of wayward people. I think it's one that we all need. He says, remember the gospel. He doesn't say, all right, turn around and check off these things and clean yourselves up and do some works. He also doesn't say, stay in your sins. He doesn't call them to religious activity. He doesn't call them to just, you know, sin's no big deal, dismiss it. No, he says, remember the gospel and get back to living a life that's congruent with the truth, with who you really are in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, what might that look like for you today? You see, gospel amnesia for us today might not look like dragging one another to judge Judy, but it could look like dozens of other things. It could look like dozens of other things, forgetting the gospel, drifting back into old patterns of unbelief and sin. It could look like holding on to a grudge. It could look like keeping your distance from people that have hurt you. It could look like being unable to forgive. It looks like forgetting that he himself is our peace who has torn down the dividing wall of hostility among us. It could look like chasing love and approval in all of the wrong places or in the wrong people, forgetting that we are his dearly loved sons and daughters that he calls us beloved. It could look like living a life that's consumed by money and materialism, keeping up with the Joneses and comfort, failing to be generous, living sacrificially, giving to those in need, but hoarding our resources. It could look like that, forgetting the... Heavenly inheritance that he uh, has for us stored in heaven, forgetting that he has blessed us, that we might be a blessing. For some of us, it looks like that. It could look like living a life that is exhausting, constant striving, forgetting that Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. It could look like living a life that's soaked with shame and guilt, forgetting the truths of the gospel where... Paul says in Romans that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forgetting the words of our Savior on the cross where he says, it is finished. You see, it could look like a lot of things. Forgetting the gospel is a real challenge for us. And if you've forgotten the gospel, if there are parts of your life, areas of your heart that are incongruent with all of the promises and all of the benefits of the gospel, the call this morning is simple. It's the call of Ephesians six. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. Remember who you are. Remember what he's done. Renew your faith and turn to him this morning in repentance. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to enter into a time of response. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper together, and we're going to invite the Spirit to move in our midst. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for the truth of your word, and I pray that as we enter into this time of response, that you would minister to us, Lord, that you would move in our midst, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to acknowledge areas of our life where we have forgotten the gospel and all of its benefits, where our lives have grown incongruent, big ways or small ways, and help us now in this time to turn back to you in repentance and in renewal of our faith. Holy Spirit, we even just invite you to be specific in this time. Would you give us specific words, specific reminders, specific corrections. I pray even in this space and in this time for the person here today that maybe has never given their life to you, has never turned to you, acknowledging their need for your grace and their mercy, and your mercy that they would do that today. They would experience the new life of Jesus Christ. They would learn to live their life in the flourishing ways of Jesus Christ. Would you be with us now? Would you move in our midst? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.